Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello. So this is episode four. We're going to be talking about the fourth film in the series, Hellraiser Bloodline. Excellent stuff. And who are you, sir? I'm Peter, and who are you, sir? I'm Phil. Good. Glad we sorted that out. Thank God. So let's dive straight into the film. It was made in 1996, and I think it's safe to say that it had quite a lot of uh, production trouble. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stories and things online about how how troubled the shoot was. Yeah, it's <laughs> quite well, well documented. <laughs> yeah. So to give you a very basic grasp of it, as far as we're aware, first of all, originally, I think Clive Barker came up with the idea of having a three-part story set in the past, then the present, and then the future, all revolving around the mythology of the box and the puzzle box and who originally made it and his ancestors. That's the bloodline of the title. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it sort of was that he wanted to do a, a story that went through time. Uh, mm. He originally wanted to do one that was started in Victorian London, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, I believe. Which yeah. I just think would have been so good. Can you imagine Pinhead standing in a room <laughs> with like gas lamps and stuff like that? Yeah. Oh, that would have been so good. But eventually they decided on the French Revolution, 18th century France. Mm-hmm. Yeah, following the fortunes of one family, the bloodline of the title... Yeah, the family Le Merchant in the French, who then becomes Merchant. Merchant. He, merchant. <laughs> when he moves to America. Yeah. So that was the idea. And then I think Peter Atkins, the writer of 2 and 3, came on board to write the script. He wrote a script which apparently is great. And you can find online the original script he wrote. And it is, it's a really good script, really interesting and... There's some amazing stuff in it. And then they got a director on board, Kevin Yeager, who came on board and made the film. But but wait, Peter. <laughs> when when I watched this film, it said directed by Alan Smithy. Yes. Now, we'll get to that in a moment, I think. I just want to say a couple more things first. It seems they showed the film to Miramax. I think Dimension Films is part of Miramax, I think. They're the ones who were funding and distributing the film. They didn't like it. They thought the Pinhead had come in earlier because, of course, he wasn't going to be in the past scenes because he wasn't around yet. As we know, he was created in the 1920s. And so they were a bit flummoxed by this because they did know that that was the script and they knew that that was the story they were filming, but they had to change it. And so they wanted to start the film in the future, which is set in space, the future section, and have the character of Paul Merchant, the future descendant, telling the story in flashback. And I believe that Kevin Yeager wasn't available to or didn't want to be a part of this idea. And so he said he wouldn't do it. And they got someone else to direct. Joe Chappelle, I think his name is, isn't it? Yeah. 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 He came on to direct the new scenes, some of which were written by someone other than Peter Atkins as well, because he wasn't available. And when Kevin Yeager was finally shown the finished film, he wasn't impressed with it. And it wasn't the vision that he wanted to make originally. So he took his name off the project, and it's now an Alan Smithy film. Anyone unfamiliar with this Alan Smithy pseudonym? It's a name the Directors Guild have created. For any director who wants to take their name off their project, it will then just be known as an Alan Smithy film, directed by Alan Smithy. Yeah, and it's very apt with this film that the credit sequence, it says directed by Alan Smithy, and there's a sense of foreboding, but not the sense of foreboding they wanted. No. 
So we're going to launch into a discussion about the film, but first of all, I just want to say for the record, this is, I think, this is my least favourite Hellraiser film. I think the story is good, I think the ideas behind it are very interesting, and it's really good, a really good story to talk about, but I think the execution of the film and the way it looks and the way it's been lit and acted and edited lets it down and it suffers and I, I don't enjoy watching it all the way through. I've got to say. Yeah, I I was a little more positive about it because I was thinking about the story and the ideas and the things behind it. But then when I re-watched it, I realised just how jarring it is to watch. So, yeah. You know, the way, as you say, the way, it, the way it looks and stuff. We'll get into all that in a minute. But um, but yeah, I really want to say that we're, we're going to talk about it now purely as two people who are just watching the film, you know, for the first time. And let's look at what's actually mm-hmm. on the screen and let's look yeah. at, you know, let's talk about what we like about the ideas behind it. Because that's what's really good. And that's the merit of this film. It does have some yeah, good Yeah, we're going to be as positive as we can be. Um, if you, you can have a great discussion about this film in relation to what the script originally was and what it should have been. And yeah, but this character was supposed to say this and this should have happened here. And that's a different discussion. That's a really interesting one that we would love to have with you at another time, maybe. But for this podcast, we're just going to talk about the film as a film to watch. Yeah, let's talk about it as if we don't know who Alan Smithy is. We have <laughs> no idea that this film was rather troubled. Then let's just see what, what comes up. Done. Good. Right, so the last time we saw Pinhead or any of the Cenobites was the end of Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Mm-hmm. He'd just been taken back to hell with Elliot Spencer... So Pinhead's gone back to hell, that's all we know. And now this new film begins, set in space to start with, on board a space station. And yeah, at the beginning of this film here, there's quite an interesting image, I think, uh, of a, a robot being used to open the box. Yeah. Now, in the film, I think it's executed quite poorly. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't look very good. But that initially uh, sparked my imagination. I thought, oh, that's a good idea. You know, a yeah, robot a really good idea. locked yeah. in a room opening the box. There's something cool about that. It is. That's a really good image. I really like that, mm. the idea. And it's being manipulated by the character Paul Merchant opening the box with these remote control gloves and in this little room is this robot doing it there. And you're right, there's a couple of close-up shots of the robot's hands opening the box and there's some questionable CGI. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look great all that, but you know, I've still got high hopes at this point, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And then he the robot opens the box and explodes. Ugh. And then Pinhead turns up very briefly, mm-hmm. flashes onto the screen in front of us, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden Paul Merchant's being arrested by a SWAT team, it seems. Yeah, yeah, people in um this is where I'm starting to go, hmm Okay, um, this is interesting. They've got kind of strange uniforms on and he's being arrested. Uh, but then, obviously, they, they have to lay out a bit of a plot. So they sort of quickly go, right, our space station's been nicked and th- this guy, what's he doing? He's immersed himself in ancient but history. He, he designed it, they say that. He yes. designed the space station. Yes, which is crucial. Yeah, and he has hijacked the space station now and is on board it summoning demons on it. Yeah. And the leader of the SWAT team, or at least the expert as she's referred to, is called Rimmer. And she then has a chat with him about what he's doing. And he says, well, I'll tell you, it started centuries ago. Well, this is the thing of the the Hellraiser (laughs) franchise a little bit. He says, 
look, I haven't got time to tell you. It's really important. And she says, well, I'm not listening to you. And he says, okay, well, let me tell you then. Yeah. And launches into a very It'll long story. It'll take about story. an hour and a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't at this point say the very simple things that I would say, which would be, there's a room downstairs, do not open it. <laughs> there's stuff in there that will get out and kill you. Yeah. You, you don't have to say it's a demon. You could say it's an angry dog, which it is. <laughs> well, one of them is. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, you know, that's me just being too logical. We're already in space. We've got demons, so let's not nitpick yeah. too much. So we then go back to 18th century France and his descendant, Philippe Le Marchand. Le Marchand. Le Marchand. He is a toy maker and he's been commissioned to create this puzzle box. Mm. Now I'm going to stop right now and talk about accents. <laughs> okay, if you're making an American film and you're going to set your film in France 200 years ago, really, well, I mean, ideally it should be in French with subtitles, but of course you might not want to do that. You don't want subtitles for a third of your film. So what you can do, you can have all the actors speaking in French accents, mm -hmm. one thing, or, which is often done, Actors speaking with English accents. That that seems to be the the done thing yeah, for, well, I mean, for anywhere in Europe. It's very everyone, close. Everyone just speaks in with English accents. So that's what they've seemed to have gone with. They're going to have the actors speaking in English accents in France. Okay. But some of them can't do English accents. And a couple of them are having to go, but quite badly. Yeah. So we've got some English accents. We've got some semi-English accents done poorly. And we've got some that aren't even bothering. Mm. And are just blatantly American. Mm -hmm. And for me, that immediately jars and says low budget or bad. <laughs> Frankly, I'm not a big fan of the of that. No, no, it's not good. It's not good. But at this point, I'm still hopeful. Uh, you know, I've seen this happen in a lot of other films. So it's not marked out purely in the Hellraiser franchise. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're moving on here. We've gone back in time. This is interesting. Yeah, it? okay. So what's happening here? Ooh. So he's been made to make this box, commissioned by the Duke de Lille, mm. who is this older gentleman. But then we find out he's actually got some evil intentions. Some. <laughs> and him and his house boy, is that what he is? Servant? Or is he... Mm, it's not made clear. No. But apprentice, apprentice, shall we say. Yeah, Jacques. Jacques. He's the American French guy. They managed to coax this urchin, the street urchin called Angelique, Angelique, into the house, and they basically then turn her into a demon. Yeah, yeah. And at this point, again, I'm kind of liking this. It's it's a little bit hmm. At this point, crucially, we've got the toy maker mm -hmm. who has delivered the box yeah. to. Uh, because it's all laid out that, you know, he wants a better future for his son and he hasn't got any money. And so this is it. He's got him getting paid. Yeah, he's it's quite explicit that he's made this box to make money because his wife's pregnant. Yeah. Uh, but then before he leaves the house, the yeah. creepy house, he decides to have a little peek through the window yeah. at what they're doing. And he and sees a, a well, pagan ritual. Is it a pagan one? A, well, I suppose it's quite religious. It's in... satanic. Yeah. Well, maybe. Is it Leviathanan? <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, he's got a big pentagram on the floor, and there are candles everywhere. He's chanting Latin, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're slicing the girl open. They slice her open, they skin her, and then hang the skin up, mm -hmm. and then chant to someone. Lots of light fills the room, mm -hmm. and the skin is then 
filled with this with her again, but as a demon. Mm. And it's not brilliantly done, this scene, I wouldn't say. No. I think there's we just good... made it sound better. Yeah, but there is some good violence. There's some good um, bloodletting before the skin gets filled. It's quite yeah. interesting. It's, it's interesting. It's not It's not great, but it's no. all right. The, it's li- all right. the lighting gets a bit weird and it's... Yeah, they really bright. go for it, don't they? When he's chanting, there's there's like... <laughs> you can see almost see the grips off stage kind of <laughs> shining mirrors in his face going, Whoa, yeah. mystical. <laughs> they make it explicit that they have summoned her because a demon, a summoned demon, is yours to command. That's what he says. Mm. And then, But then Jacques says, yes, unless you stand in hell's way. Don't forget that. But that's the mythology that's created. A summoned demon is yours to command unless you stand in hell's way. Which, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah, I think the idea of it's interesting, but I think they don't do it in an interesting way in this film. That's, that's really the byline for this film. Yeah. <laughs> interesting ideas done in an uninteresting way <laughs> um, because they make it too explicit in the film you know it's a nice little rule mm. that they say oh you know you can command this uh, demon but if you stand in hell's way you're in trouble but they keep you know they sort of say it in a really kind of like oh this is a clever little twist and a, yeah. I don't know that's just me so Philippe Lemarchand has seen this from outside he goes home he then has a chat to a surgeon friend of his mm. Explains it. The surgeon is is very dismissive, but says, "So you're saying you made a box that creates demons? All right. Well, make one that gets rid of them." Hmm. And that's that scene's done really well. Yeah, I quite like that scene because he would be, you know, he's a man of science, and yeah. he, he, the way that the actor plays it, he's very much like, "Okay, well, if you have created a box that makes demons, then create something else that gets rid of them." And that's and it's quite, done that's really. Yeah, it's not exposition. It's done in a way that he's just trying to get rid of him. Right. Fine. If that's what you think, then. There you go, that's my advice. Now go away. It's one of the very few scenes in this film where it seems like a real conversation that actually moves the plot along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's character-driven. Yeah. All too brief. Ah. So he then sets about designing a new box that will close the gateway to hell, it seems, mm-hmm. they're implying, and mm-hmm. get rid of the demons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or demon, as it is at this point. Yeah. And that is what the rest of the film's about. That's what the ancestors are all trying to do as well. So here's where it gets a little bit... Mm. Now we start on the downward slope, really. Yeah. If we're not already a bit on it. (laughs) Just to finish off the French bit, Philippe goes back to the house because he wants to steal the box he made so he can then fiddle about with it and change it. Mm -hmm. But when he gets there, he discovers the Duke de Lille has been overthrown, basically, by Jacques, who's now commanding Angelique to basically have sex with him. Mm -hmm. And she's his to command. She spots Philippe and kills him. That's it. That's all that happens there, really. Basically, yeah. Um, that's the end of that. His wife is there purely to see him die yeah, she, and, and yeah. run away. This is it's all just kind of constructed to go, oh no, he, he made the box, but now he's dead. But his son lives on. We'll tear your ears apart. So that's the end of the French bit. And the second third of the film is set in 1996, present day. Yeah. We've got Philippe's descendant, who is now called John Merchant, who lives in America. And he is the one, right, here we go, he designed that building we saw at the end of number three. Oh. Remember that? Yeah, they tied it all in, didn't they? That big building. Mm Mm-hmm. Which we were led to believe was just created because Joey put the box in some... Cement, mm-hmm. but now it seems that this guy, who was an ancestor of D. 
the original toy maker, he designed it. Hmm. I'm in a weird way. I think that makes less sense than the building just kind of creating itself because the box is in it. But hey, that's fine. And so because of this, he's on the front cover of a magazine that is then seen in Paris by Angelique and Jacques, who is still alive. He's she's prolonged his life. He's lived two hundred years longer than he should have done. Yeah. And she says, "Let's go to America." And he says, "I don't want to go to America." Yeah, he's he, in this scene, I think maybe it was a bit too much for the actor. I don't want to criticise the actor too much, but he's playing a guy who's lived for 200 years, you know, longer than he should have done and been consorting with a demon. And he basically looks like a bloke in a suit who's kind of, I yeah. don't know, he just doesn't carry any kind of <laughs> no gravitas. No, and he's speaking with his West Coast American accent, <laughs> talking about how he's a Parisian, doesn't want to go to America. But anyway, moving on. At this point, it becomes clear that he is now standing in hell's oh, way. Here's the twist. <laughs> so she destroys him. Yeah, she kills him. She scratches his face a little bit with her monster-like claws. Yeah. Mm. Rips a hole in his cheek. Oh. Which is nice. I like that. That's you, a good, you like that. That's a good image. <laughs> Do you not like that? I think it's okay. <laughs> and then she goes to America to find the toy maker's descendant. Yeah. Which she does. But before she does, or before she speaks to him, she coaxes a random man down into the basement of the building that Merchant designed. She plucks the puzzle box out of a wall and makes the man solve it and summons Pinhead. Mm. Now, as you can see, this is all getting slightly confusing. Yeah. Now, do you remember, Phil, in the film Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, Mm -hmm. it's explicitly stated that it is not hands that call us, it is desire. I remember that well. Well, in this film, this chap is being made to open the box and is just all of a sudden chained, pulled down a long corridor and eaten by a demonic dog. Yeah. I mean, you could make the argument that he desires to open it because basically yeah. she said to him, come downstairs, we're going to get it on. Mm-hmm. But first, I want you to take your top off and solve this puzzle box. Yeah. And he's loving that. So he's just... Yeah, which is odd. He's really loving it. <laughs> he has the desire for her, and because of that, he's opening the box. Now, you could argue that. Yeah. But let's not be silly. That's, <laughs> that's not, that's, that's a, that is a way of justifying it, but I think we all can agree it's just bad writing, isn't it? Well, maybe. Maybe. But one reason why this, this little scene is quite interesting is it's a mirror of the scene from the very first film, of the first victim Julia brings back to the house. And that's mm. quite interesting. Yeah. Even to the similar dialogue about, we don't need to know each other's names, do we? That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But when you're watching this film, or at least when I'm watching this film, because it looks quite bad, it just reminds you how good the first one was. Yeah, if you played this scene with Random Man, you know, with first film, Random Man scene, put them together... You'd see a huge difference. Which, incidentally, is one of my favourite scenes of the first one. Yeah. I didn't talk about that on the first podcast, but I love that scene. I think the guy who plays that is amazing. It is brilliant acting. Anyway, but we're talking about this film (laughs) that is not full of brilliant acting. No. But I know I've been talking about the look of it, and it looks bad. I just want to explain what I mean by that, but I don't know if I can. It looks, to me, it doesn't look like a cinematic film. It looks like a made-for-TV movie. Which it actually wasn't. It was released in the cinemas in America. Yeah. 
and I don't exactly know why that was. I think part of it is the lighting. I think it's quite badly lit in places. But yeah. It's a little too colourful and a little too bright. I think it might be the cameras they used to film it. It looks a bit too clean. Yeah, it's a lot of things, I think. But I, I think, like, in every scene, you can very much see, you know, this is a set. This that's another is, thing. Yeah, that's it, yeah. You know, and it's sets as well. Lots of sets. Lots of... The lighting is very, you know... I don't know. Unforgiving. It just places. doesn't look right at all. And it look it has that clear look of a TV film. Yeah, somehow. I think so. I think so. Somehow. And that's the case of the entire movie. And that's what I meant at the beginning when I said, I think it looks, the film looks bad. And I do think it looks bad. And it's a, it's a real shame. It looks cheap. And the budget for this film, I think, just was not enough for the scope of the script. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they knew they had to do the past. They knew they had to do the future, set in space on a space station. It needed a good lot of money. I don't think it had enough. No, absolutely. And this is where the real warning bells are kicking off here because mm-hmm. this is set in the present day and it looks bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the building that uh, Merchant has built has these weird, you know, cardboard-looking box mm. motifs on the walls that move around and stuff and it just looks poor and as you're watching it you know there's going to be the last act of the film set in space yeah so you're kind of thinking well maybe that's going to look great but let's not talk about that now <laughs> but pinhead has now arrived so that's good that is good doug bradley doug bradley bless him doing a great job as usual yeah he's, when he's being well he's always faultless really, i mean isn't he? you know he's being handed some pretty unfortunate stuff in this yeah. film. Yeah, but he's, whenever he's on screen in any of the films, no matter what dreck he's been given to <laughs> spout, he manages to do it in a really entertaining way and it's, it's he's always a pleasure to watch. He is, he is. And, uh, and now he's got a pet dog. Yes. Mm. And you're, you're not, a, you know, you don't like this dog, do you, Peter? No. No? <laughs> and I'll tell you why. We get glimpses of it, very brief glimpses. Um, we get a shot down the end of a corridor of this there's some kind of creature there there's a couple of really scary moments where you don't see it but you hear it and then you see it yeah and it is not impressive no it seems to be an amalgamation of the chatterer cenobite yeah, and, kind a, of. and a dog well it's <laughs> it's known as the chatter beast so that's the idea they were having i don't have any problem with the idea behind this dog and i and the design of it if it had been made well, would be really scary and well done. But the model they use, or the puppet, or whatever it is they use, it just looks so fake. Well, you've just set yourself an impossible challenge, haven't you? Because you can't have a guy in the suit, and it's no, on four legs. So it was just a, a silly idea on the money that but they it's had. Not, it's a really good idea. No, I no, 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 no. Really I mean, idea. it's a great idea, but on the money they had, yeah, maybe. there's no point in trying to do a four-legged animal that's got lots of scenes where it's running around. Mm-hmm. That's lunacy. No, so for the record, I think the Chatter Beast is a brilliant idea. I'd love to see it done really well in a future film, but I don't think it's done very well in this one. So you're saying, once again, this is a case of a really <laughs> great idea... Poorly executed. Yes. Oh dear, no. Oh no, no, no. Let's not be negative. Let's find out something good. Okay, we've got Pinhead. Yeah, he's now having a chat with Angelique, Mm -hmm. who is a demon, remember? Yeah, so they're chums, or are they? Well, it's not implied. I mean, it's kind of implied. She has just been hanging around in Paris for 200 years. Yeah. We're never told that she's gone to hell, or met Leviathan, or any of that 
mythology, Pinhead just turns up and he talks about how hell is different to when she was there, which is odd. I mean, what we don't we don't get any of this backstory really. No, just snippets. Yeah, and uh, again, we did say we weren't going to do this, but <laughs> I think there's a lot. I mean, Doug Bradley and a lot of people have spoken about how they wanted them to have um, Pinhead and Angelique to have a quite a spiky relationship in that they yeah. will maybe They're they don't like each be. other. You know, maybe she's trying to get Pinhead's power and stuff. But I really don't feel like that comes across in the film very well at all. No, and it, there's this weird sexual tension between them in the in the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a bit where he gets a little hook and shoves it into her flesh between her breasts, and blood drips down, and it's all. And she then seems to be enjoying that, and it's all there's sexual overtones in it. Yeah, which I think Clive Barker even mentioned in an interview. He said maybe the Black Pope of Hell will get laid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'm 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 not against this, but again, it it doesn't come across very well in the film. Um, Angelique's character just doesn't really; she certainly can't stand up to Pinhead. You know, I think they wanted her to be like as you know powerful, mm. as magnetic as him, and it just doesn't work for me. No, me neither. Well, they don't explore it enough. No, and she eventually finds Merchant, and she tries to convince him to complete his work. Mm. implying that he will make the box that will close the door to hell and get rid of the demons. That's what that implies, doesn't it? I think. Hang on. Are you saying that she <laughs> wants to close... It seems to be, because she sees the diagram that Le Marchand made of the box that will close hell, and she talks about him finishing it. Well, I'm thinking, thinking about it now, and again, we're just trying to work this through because it isn't particularly clear in the film, just purely from watching the film... I'm thinking that she, what she's thinking is she wants him to finish his light beam box thing that he's trying to make yeah, so that she can use it to get rid of Pinhead and then open the gateway for herself. But she hasn't met Pinhead when she first goes to America to meet Merchant. Exactly. Or has she? I don't know. Because Pinhead kind of implies that oh, yeah, well, he, he says, knows who she you know, is. Yeah. Basically, you know, at this point, we're making a lot of assumptions and a good film really doesn't need you to be trying to fill no, in so many this... blanks. The present day section of this film is the bit that doesn't make any sense when you really think about it. Mm. You, be- can, you can make it make sense. You can. But should you or can you? I don't that? know if you can, because all of a sudden Pinhead's trying to get him to finish his work as well. He just says, finish your work. And then he implies that there's a room in the building that if he completes it will act as a giant puzzle box to open the gate to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what they're saying here is that Pinhead wants the gateway open to hell, yeah. as he always does. It's basically, you know, what he's always about. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wants Pinhead out of the way, and she wants the gateway for herself. And then when it finally does get opened, it's not clear who wants what or what is even happening. It isn't, and it gets even more unclear in that there seems to be some kind of relationship between Angelique and merchant mm-hmm. some kind of sexual relationship or some kind of half dreamed relationship yeah. he's under her spell but it's really not spelled out very well you know in the film and there's this scene where pinhead is saying look you are using tricks you're using illusions to get what you want i'm gonna use suffering but yeah. it's a great scene i like seeing doug bradley act but it's completely unnecessary actually that bit you're talking about is at the end of a pretty bad scene <laughs> with the twins Ah, yes. Let's talk about the twins. Hey, everyone, there's a new Cenobite in town. Hey, is it as good as CD Head? Well, jury's out on that one. (laughs) (laughs) There are two twins in the film, security guards. Yes. Who have some questionable dialogue, 
and questionable acting skills. I'm afraid to say, I'm sure they're lovely chaps, but I think their acting is, is, is pretty bad. It's as if they just found the first twins they could find because they had to be twins. Yeah, bless them. And they've got some kind of comic relief-y type dialogue. Yeah. Oh. Doesn't work. They meet the Chatter Beast. <laughs> and then Pinhead turns up and turns them into this weird twin Cenobite. Mm. Which uh, I think is just known as the twin Cenobite now. So their heads get merged together. Mm. And they look like one of them's sort of smiling, one is sort of frowning like the old Greek theatrical masks and basically that that's it yeah it's just it's just unnecessary and kind of poorly done because they can't really show what's happening mm. so there's a lot of cutting away to each twin with bits of shots of blood and stuff oh no it's bad if you filmed that i would just be mortified i just think <laughs> what have we done this is a really bad idea yeah and that's it. You don't see him again in this section. He will turn up later, or they mm. will turn up later. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about them then. So let's try and work out what actually happened to the end of the present day section. Pinhead is trying to get Merchant to do something with the room and the box. He's, he says to him, finish your work. Yeah. He wants to open the gateway to hell. To make him do this, he's kidnapped his little boy. Pinhead has kidnapped a boy. Also, leading to a scene where he's got the boy... He's kidnapped him. Mm -hmm. His mum's looking for him. She finds him, uh, leading to a scene where Pinhead is talking to the mother. And the makeup on Pinhead at this point, the lighting, I don't know what they have done. When he's at the bottom of the stairs. Yeah, yeah. but it looks so bad. It, the colours are all completely wrong. I don't know. It's either they did the makeup different on that day and got it wrong, or that's what the makeup always looks like if it was lit this way. And it's I, being badly lit on that day. I think it's the second one. You think it's the lighting? Because I don't. I think they they had that makeup down so well. I think yeah, that's probably the I case. I think the yeah, lighting think so. completely didn't work because it was in a brightly lit stairwell mm -hmm. as well, which just goes to show this this kind of slapdash way that mm -hmm. they were going about things. But hey, you know, there we go. Anyway, so he kidnaps the boy. Yep, yeah, and then the wife manages to get the box, and she's being tormented by the Chatterbee, sends it back to hell using the box. Mm -hmm. And then it just becomes completely unclear. Pinhead decides all of a sudden to kill Merchant. Instead of getting him to finish his work, he kills him. Mm -hmm. He enjoys that. He's laughing about it. Mm -hmm. Chops his head off. Yeah. That's done quite well. That is good. That's very good. I like that. And then the box seems to do something on its own. Angelique gets chains round her and gets dragged in to the box. Mm -hmm. And then Pinhead gets really upset about everything because the box is exploding. And he just goes... He gets he goes back to hell again, I think. And it's not clear why any of that happened, or what anyone's motivation was, or why the box did what it did. Yep, it's just a very confusing scene with lots of poor optical CGI-esque effects yeah. of light, and um, doesn't work. But essentially, the little boy is safe, dad's dead, but Pinhead goes back to hell. The little boy has the blood He has the blood. of Le Marchand inside him. Mm-hmm. So he's going to carry on the bloodline. Mm-hmm. The podcast. You downloaded it. We came. Let's move on to the future section. This bit is fairly clear as oh. to what's going on. Well, I've been really looking forward to this because I saw a little bit at the beginning of the film. It was quite dark, but now I know this is going to be the bit where all the money was spent. Isn't it, Peter? Mm. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh No, God. this bit doesn't quite look as good as it should either. No. It's a shame. It's it, There's some strange sets and, again, bad lighting. I'm sorry, guys who made it. 
but I don't enjoy the lighting in this film. No. So this this space station looks like a lot of completely pitch black corridors with white light coming and yeah. smoke and uh, looks like some kind of spook house. Yeah. But anyway, not good. Merchant has summoned the Cenobites. I say the Cenobites, the one only ones that we've met already in this film. Yes, well now Angelique is a Cenobite. That's true. She has and given I up. Really like her makeup in this one. Yeah, she looks like a I, I believe it was supposed to be like a nun, wasn't it? A nun from hell. I I believe so. It was it was partly inspired by Sister Act. Whoopi <laughs> Goldberg. Yeah. Well there you go. You can see that. But her head <laughs> yeah, her head's been been splayed open in half and is attached to her shoulders. Mm. Like that's a, great. Like a veil. It, yeah. it looks great. This is this is where I'm like, yeah, okay. I can see her being the right hand of Pinhead, or mm-hmm. I can see her being a match of Pinhead, purely in terms of look. You know, the Black Pope and the Nun from Hell. It, it and that's what cool. she she is now. She's definitely working with him. She if, is. if she was trying to stop him before, she definitely is with him now. Well, now she's got a really good look. She just has no motivation at all, really. Now no. she's just a classic monster going, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's it. That is it. Sorry, sorry, Angelique, gone. So the SWAT team get picked off one by one in fairly inventive ways. One of them involving the twin Cenobites. Yeah, which well, is which is odd. I mean, the twin Cenobites' power seems to be to come into a room because they're joined together. Obviously, yeah, don't forget they've got their big Cenobite costume, yeah. <laughs> double size, and then they come up to someone who, who's obviously standing motionless with fear, obviously as you would be, and uh, they stand next to you. They separate, stand either side of you, yeah. and then join together again, and you you disappear in the middle. God, it's awful, that. It's awful, isn't it? That's terrible. That's just a terrible idea. <laughs> it's not the best. No. And I find this part of the film just quite depressing, really, because it's just lots of dark corridors, lots of soldiers kind of walking around, and then they all get picked off one by one. So, yeah, for me, this bit is very uninspiring, kind of stalk and slash. Um, and yeah, again, this is both slasherish. This bit it is, isn't it? And again, this is where I think the magic of the first Hellraiser film, you know, can Pinhead appear here? Can he appear there? You know, the kind of stuff that you'd read in a book and it makes sense to you. It doesn't make sense when it's put forward like this that Pinhead just keeps popping up in a room, having a bit of dialogue, then disappearing again, then appearing somewhere else. And he doesn't seem to feel that this is the end game, as he keeps saying it. Mm-hmm. He sort of has no emotion about it. He... Isn't it Merchant saying it's the end game? No, no, he's... Pinhead says it. Oh, right, because Merchant says it at the end. That's his sort of last line to Pinhead. Right? Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, Pinhead just doesn't... He just keeps appearing and then monologuing, which is great, because I like his monologues. But mm. it just doesn't work in a filmic sense, I don't think, that he... You know, there's no sense of real pushing to the climax of the film here for me. That's just my opinion. No, I agree. I agree. I think the end of the film is quite inventive and is quite clever in terms of there's a bit where we've been given a countdown for Merchant to do something or other. Pinhead's talking to him in a room and all of a sudden Merchant disappears and it turns out that was a hologram of him and Merchant's actually in an escape ship leaving leaving the space station. Yeah, which which opens up another interesting question. This That, that, that made me think that Pinhead, you know, he's immortal, he lives in hell, and he pops up whenever someone opens the box. Mm -hmm. And in this case, he's popped up in the future, where there are spaceships, space stations, and so on. And he doesn't seem to know 
you know, or care about where he is, what he's going on. Does he know that the world has moved on? Does he? Well, he must do because I mean, know? he will have been summoned a fair few times before this. I guess so, but like you know, does he know that hologram? He was fought a by point. a hologram. Yeah. Does he know what they are? He seems to not know what it was. He doesn't seems very go, confused. Yeah, he doesn't go. Ah, it's a hologram. I've been tricked. He goes, what? What the? He looks like a kind of confused dog going, "Hey, where, <laughs> where you go?" Yeah, and um, then I think that's interesting. And then the entire space station folds in on itself, and it turns out the space station was a giant box oh. that was unfolded. Mm-hmm. And it folds in and does this light show and becomes the Elysium configuration as opposed to the Lament configuration, which the original puzzle box was. And that's it. And Pinhead, it's implied, gets killed. Yeah, he's really shocked about it. He's He says, I'm, I'm immortal, you can't get rid of me, I can't die. I can't die, and then... Merchant sort of says, I beg to differ, because look at this. Yeah, and he's, he burns him up, and apparently he's all gone. So it does imply, I mean, we can have as many films as you want in the future set between, well, the 1920s and the 2120s, I think, is when this bit's set. But it does imply that from then on, Pinhead is dead. So we have seen him die. We can have loads of more stories about him before this, but this is the end of Pinhead. Supposedly. Mm. That is what it seems to imply. I mean, it could be that he goes back to hell and he can start again. Or I don't think they would give it a second thought. If they <laughs> wanted to do another film in that vein, I don't think they would care. So that's just happened, and the ship is just travelling back to Earth. It's just on its way. Credits. <laughs> yeah, the, he gets away, doesn't he, Merchant? Because we all he thought Him he and was going to die. Everyone else gets killed. Yeah, we all, I mean, you know, it was a pretty foregone conclusion that he was going to go down with the ship and take Pinhead down, end his bloodline, you know, the whole film wraps up. But no, he manages to jump in his shuttle and uh, he flies for two seconds and then they go, credits, please get out of the cinema. Please get out and stop watching this right now because we're all embarrassed. (laughs) And that is a bit rushed. And I think in general, the editing of this film is, is too rushed. It's a little quick, isn't it? You can almost see the points where they've had to cut things or something didn't make sense and they just quickly cut to something else. Or yeah, it's true. It was they, they thought it was too long, so they just cut it in half. The very opening is supposed to be establishing shots of the space station and it's just space station, corridor, corridor, merchant. Yeah. Or robot. And it's, and it's just a, such a shame. There are moments where the film does need to just slow down for a moment and breathe. Yeah, it's just a it's just a bit of a sad tale, isn't it? This film, it, it, it's so much ambition, so much you know. You can see it there on the screen. They wanted to tell this sprawling tale, and it just doesn't achieve any of it really. I mean, there's just little flashes of goodness here and there. Because I don't want to be too negative about it. I mean, yeah, we're being negative about it because it is a bad film. <laughs> I mean, there's no two ways about that. But there's good stuff in there as well there's just good stuff little in diamonds here and there yeah the music's good yeah I like the music makeup again is good when it's lit correctly hello yeah there's some great bloodletting there's some great horror makeup mm-hmm. there's not much gore in it though I must say I didn't think not much there's you know, some there's some there's a few bits and bobs there's some some strange little bits and but bobs the director Alan Smithy sorry Kevin Yeager mm. he came from a special effects background mm. didn't he so it could be a case of they got him in to do the film he was he was up for shaping shots and doing the special effects and things but left it to another team to work out the look of the film and it's them that ballsed it up it's possible we'll we, you know 
We can look online. We know anyway, but we said we weren't <laughs> going to talk about it. But yeah, you know, many things. People were hired and fired, weren't they? And, you know, it was yeah. a, there was a lot of that going on. But um, yeah, unfortunate that the end result is, is, such, a, is such a mess. Um, and part of it definitely is studio interference and what was done to the film. After the first rough cut was submitted, I'd love to see that first rough cut. Apparently it was about 110 minutes long. Mm. And the current film is 80 minutes yeah, and I'd love to see that original Kevin Yeager version. It would still look the same. It would still look pretty bad, but I think it would make a lot more sense, and the story would be there, and it would just be a much more enjoyable experience. Yeah, we'd well, hope so. <laughs> you would hope so. Yeah, I think it's just another example of studios thinking that the audience are stupid and we're so much more intelligent than they give us credit for. They're like, wait a minute, you know, Pinhead hasn't been in the first beginning bit of the film. We, you've got to put him in, otherwise people won't know he's in the film. Yeah, they'll well, walk out of the cinema. He's on the poster. <laughs> the, the film's called Hellraiser. I know he's going to be in it somewhere. I'm not, I'm not just going to suddenly go, he's not in it, I'm leaving. They didn't care about that for some of the other sequels that are yet to come. No. He's hardly in some of those. That's true, that's true. But, the, you know, it's... It, it, they just, you know, and they say, well, you can't have this long backstory about this. Well, if it starts in the past, well, that's really boring. No, it isn't. It's yeah, interesting. It would have been great. It's interesting. You know, I don't know. You don't need to keep jumping around to keep us going in some kind of like MTV channel flicking type way. Just tell the story from beginning to end. Yeah. But uh, hey, studios, come on. Get the message, guys. We, we know what we're doing. We're <laughs> watching the film and we're going to enjoy it. Yeah. Alright, here's something that is quite interesting that we see in this film that hasn't been shown before is that Pinhead and or the other Cenobites can imitate people's voices. Yeah. In a sort of Terminator style way. Yeah. To make people think that there are trapped kids in a room or Mm -hmm. they can pretend to be a specific character. And we haven't seen that before. We haven't. We haven't, no. No, that's a new new one. Mm -hmm. A new power. But apart from that, it's all pretty thin on the ground, isn't it, Powers? I think uh, one thing that I would say is that Pinhead seems to rely much more on his machines in this one. His kind of weird hell machines. Like the the weird machines that he uses to make the twin Cenobite. You know, they're quite complicated now the machines and they kind of they've been used before, you know, the the weird uh, tubes that go into you. His box, his yeah, big cabinet. His big cabinet. Um, I don't know. Maybe they've been. Maybe I just feel like it's used more in this film. But um, but don't forget that in the third one, it was Unbound Pinhead who was making the Cenobites. Where in this one, maybe it's Leviathan, yeah, yeah. doing it, and Pinhead just. Yeah, I don't think to... it's a. I don't think it's a bad thing. I quite like his little machines. It's just strange, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know? And again, I like the idea of the dog. I just, it's just done really badly. Yeah, and he's. Um... Still got the chains and the hooks, which is good. Although he's nice. a little special hook for chopping off Merchant's head, which I really like. Yeah, that's good. That is good. Yeah. But as we mentioned earlier on, the only other Cenobites we see in this film, at the end of the film, are the ones that were created earlier. There's no Chatterer, there's no Butterball female no. Cenobite. None of the ones from 3. Yeah. And that's uh, one thing that I would say is at the beginning of this well, when we first see Pinhead, he doesn't seem to have really suffered any ill effects from what happened in Hellraiser Three. You know, he... when we first see him in the present day section, you mean? Yeah, when, when he, yeah, when yeah. he's first there, you know, he 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 makes you know 
whatever yeah, happened in that... three, he just got sent to hell, and he's he's fine about it now. And he's, it's certainly not on. a case of of ignoring three because it's the same building that was seen at the end. Mm-hmm. So that definitely did happen yeah. in this in the chronology of this story. But yeah, Pinhead, so he's, he's yeah. got over it. He went on a short it. holiday, <laughs> and um, probably got told off by Leviathan when he got back, and yeah. he got back into work. Leviathan was like. Yes, I know. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Never mind. Where's Angelique? Hell's hell's really boring while she's not here. Okay, so I think that's that's probably about it for our discussion about Hellraiser Bloodline. Mm -hmm. I just want to say again for the record, I think this is a really good idea. I think it was a clever story, a good script originally, from what I can see. I think that when they came to make the film, it was poorly executed and suffers from that. And now, because of those things and studio interference, it's now my least favourite to watch. Mm, yeah, I I definitely uh, love the ideas behind it. But again, same as you, Peter. And uh, I'd like to maybe have a discussion in the future about what went on behind the scenes and how it went wrong and the differences and stuff. But for now, we uh, were just looking purely at what was up there. Yeah. And there we go. If you do want us to do a podcast about the sort of behind the scenes aspects of not just this film, but all of them that we can find the information for, as far as we're aware, then do let us know. We have our email address, hellraiserpodcast at hotmail.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at hellraisercast. Do you want our Facebook page? Yeah, absolutely. Any, just get, any comments? Get chatting, yeah. Any comments that you want to that you want to send in, please do and keep, you know, getting people to review us and so on and so forth it's really lovely to hear people's comments yeah we've had some more really good feedback and we are going to do a feedback podcast at some point it's going to be good so keep those coming in it's really great to hear from you yeah definitely and it's nice to know that we're being appreciated which we seem to be so thanks for listening yes it's really really good thank you very much right so phil what's next what is next jaws (laughs) (laughs) yeah now we're going to move to the saw films (laughs) no next up is the fifth film in the series Hellraiser Inferno, which is going to be our next podcast. That's like two hells, isn't it, in the title? We've got Hellraiser and then Inferno. Doesn't that sound exciting? It sounds like a lot of fire. Maybe it's going to be amazing. I can't wait for it. Well, if you guys can't wait for it either, then go and watch it. Watch it. And before you know it, there'll be a Hellraiser Inferno podcast for you to listen to and see what we think. Yeah. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Peter. And we'll see you all very soon. Bye for now. Bye. So, Toymaker, here we are. Yes, this is the endgame, Pinhead. I, I was going to say that anyway. So, I want you to finish your work. Never. No, but you must complete your work. Why? Uh, because I need... Wait... I'm going to open this box. No, hang on. You 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 open the box. Wait. Is this room a box? Or this whole this whole building's a box, isn't it? What? What? Wait, I'm confused. Has anyone got a script? Right. So, you need to open the No, you close the Wait, get that dog away. Take him outside. He needs to go. Listen. This is important. Angelique, take the leash. All right, look. Merchant, this is the end game. I said that. Yeah, okay. Right, you... Wait, I need to work this out. Uh, Right, so you do... That's it. You need to turn this room into a box to open it, and that is a gateway to hell. Yes, that's it. Oh, where's he gone? Oh, he's gone again. Oh, 